this is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks. In today's programme... The United States is still the power, the nation-state that matters the most, which is why we were all glued on our TVs on November 3rd and the week thereafter, trying to figure out who's going to be the next US president. Neither Biden nor Harris has come out strongly in favor of the United Nations as a system. So I do think there's going to be a certain continual of cherry picking. The support for human rights has to start at home. How the U.S. can't just assume moral leadership, it has to show moral leadership. They have to lead more by the power of their example than by the example of their power. Today, we're going to look at the prospects for International Geneva and the big multilateral organizations that live and work here and what the consequences for them could be with new president-elect Joe Biden. Will he, can he make things different from the last four years? To discuss this, I'm joined by Yussi Hanimaki, Professor of International History at Geneva's Graduate Institute. Peggy Hicks, director at the UN's Human Rights Office, and our analyst, Daniel Warner. But before we start, let's actually just hear a couple of words from President-elect Joe Biden himself. I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide, but unify. I sought this office to restore the soul of America and to make America respected around the world again. So we hear Joe Biden with unifying words. He says he wants to repair the U.S. image around the world. Perhaps we should be optimistic about that. But before we look to the future, maybe we should have a quick assessment of the last four years. There was worry in 2016 when President Trump was elected. There has been disengagement from the U.S., how hard has it actually been for international Geneva? Um, you see, I'm going to start with you first. So if you look at it from the perspective of international Geneva, then, of course, it's been pretty bad. If you think about some of the institutions like the WTO or I guess more obviously the WHO, then um, the Trump administration certainly was no friend of, of, of any of those multilateral organizations. So that is, of course, quite bad. More broadly speaking, I mean, the, the idea that the U.S. foreign policy has is, is been in a terrible place and now suddenly there's going to be a, um, a complete turnaround, then I think there we may be overshooting ourselves in, in, in a thinking that things actually were as bad as they were. And we may be, maybe sort of mixing a bit the rhetoric in terms of what we heard from the Trump administration um, with the with the actual reality of American foreign policy, and we may be thinking that that we somehow going back to the way things were in 2015. We can't just turn back the clock and and go where we were. Now, last point, just to make Joe Biden. Of course, he was Obama's vice president, so we have this temptation to think that okay, we're going back to the good old years. Much like in 2008, and nobody remembers, you know, Obama was supposed to be a savior who would walk on water and, and fix everybody's problems. That did not happen. 
I think, in the subsequent eight years. Similarly, not everything fell through in the past four years. And I think the biggest indication of that is the United States is still the power, the nation state that matters the most, which is why we were all glued on our TVs on November 3rd and the week thereafter, trying to figure out who's going to be the next US president. I don't think we care that much about any other election anytime, anywhere in the world than the US presidential election. If there's any indication that people still expect and look look towards the United States for something, some kind of leadership, the simple fact of how much attention the presidential election a few weeks ago, how it really was the only news story. Peggy, I want uh, you to reflect a little bit also on the last four years. I was quite interested to hear you, Yussi, being, being quite cautious and saying that how much we paid attention to the US election is, reflects just how important the United States is. I wonder, though, we didn't watch Bush-Gore with quite so much attention, I don't remember. I mean, did it have something also to do with the current resident of the White House and what we have experienced over the last four years? I mean, you say that the rhetoric was worse than the reality. That's what I'm interested in asking you, Peggy, because shortly after the 2016 election, you and I were, I think I interviewed you and we, we talked about the kind of normal relationships that big UN agencies like UN Human Rights would have with the United States. And you said something quite interesting. You said, we don't really know where the letterbox is anymore. Has it really been tough the last four years? I appreciate Yussi's uh, cynicism and, and holding back the, the unbridled enthusiasm that some of us on the human rights side may have. Um, but I, you know, you talked about rhetoric rather than reality, but in, in this instance, actually the rhetoric created some reality as well in, in a very destructive way globally on human rights, I think. You know, when we look at the, the, the U.S. role over the last four years, you know, there's a big piece of it, which is a vacuum. And, you know, vacuum in this instance could be positive in a way. It could mean that some other players step up and engage more and more constructively. And we saw that occasionally in the Human Rights Council, where the absence of the U.S. created space where other actors came in without the elephant in the room, they were able to get more done. Unfortunately, those small examples that I could give on that side were, were far outweighed by the, the instances where the absence of the U.S. actually led to, to really negative dynamics for human rights in a variety of senses. And then, of course, there is the you know one piece of it's the vacuum, but the other is what were at the actual policies and and what impact does does U.S. policy have on human rights globally? And the reality is in in a in a host of areas there was a market downturn, which which not only had an impact in terms of how the U.S. was dealing with these issues, but was profoundly felt in U.N. structures here in Geneva and in New York but ultimately on the ground for human rights activists and defenders globally. If you look simply at the, the U.S. rhetoric around women's rights, gender, and sexual and reproductive health and rights, it's been very destructive, and it has led to the loss of lives. The global gag rule, which has meant that funding cannot go to organizations that have some indirect relationship to family planning and abortion, that sort of thing has had a direct impact and is the sort of thing that, that can be changed. And then, of course, climate um, with the U.S. withdrawal and the impact there and health 
um, as we've seen during the pandemic. And of course, one of the key issues I hope we'll get to, the issues of racial justice and the impact of those issues globally. I'm going to have to ask Danny now, you being an American who uh, has lived for long in Geneva, why don't you give us a little bit flavor of, of the mood maybe in the American community over the, the last four years? Well, I mean, the American community is not homogeneous. Obviously, certain people in the corporate sector and the banking world were quite happy when Trump reduced the taxes. Uh, but from international Geneva's perspective, especially dealing with human rights, I would make two comments. The first, there was a definite assault on the multilateral system. Uh, whether it be the WHO, the World Health Organization, the World Trade, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's no question that America first, uh, Trump and his allies were against uh, forms of multilateralism. But secondly, I want to uh, compliment a little bit Peggy. There was also a personal aspect of Trump and his admiration for certain autocrats, uh, whether they be in China, Russia, uh, or whatever. And we see, for example, no criticism of human rights in Saudi Arabia. On the contrary, and the recent visit of the Secretary of State Pompeo in Israel also points out uh, that there was a tremendous admiration and work with the United States with Israel, which had no consideration for this for the Palestinians or certain aspects of international law. So I think there was an assault on the multilateral system. And also, I think the personality of Donald Trump uh, and what he tweeted and, and his policies were very much against human rights and were very imbalanced in that sense. And I agree with you, see Hanumaki, that this will be very difficult to overcome for Biden and his team in the future. What are we looking at, though, in maybe in, in the first few weeks uh, after the inauguration? I mean, you see, we've seen Tony Blinken announced as U.S. Secretary of State. Apparently, he's been quite vocal in his support for multilateral institutions. We see John Kerry as a climate czar, which must really be making uh, climate activists um, and everybody who worked so hard for the Paris Climate Accord really pretty hopeful. Mm -hmm. There's no question that uh, multilateralism is, is, is very much back on the agenda, and the appointments clearly reflect that. Those um, reversals that we saw in the Trump administration regarding the Paris Agreements or anything else, I mean, those, the clock is turning back. What's also, to me, was what's interesting in the appointments so far, that there are no big stars in big political stars in this team they're, they're professionals they're they're you know career diplomats so there's clearly the a break with the past so the nightmare is over i think that's that's the that's the message you know hope again and for human rights and and, and for everything all those things that that were lost like danny said i mean you have to be a little bit careful in in expecting too much the last one i just just to say that america first has uh, never been off the agenda the obama administration thought about america first they just thought about it differently they thought that multilateralism served that purpose for the united states better than being the bully in the block and 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 and, and all that so the biggest change in fundamental change is not that suddenly we have an administration that cares more about the world than than about the united states that's hardly the point you have a president who thinks that it's important for the United States to be part of that world and indeed to play a leadership role if, if and whenever possible, that that serves America's interests. 
I want to come back to the point about America first in just a moment um, to, to unpick that a little bit. But before we leave this, this topic of what we're actually hoping for, Peggy, is it important to UN Human Rights that the, the US stands again right away for the UN Human Rights Council? Or is a simple kind of return to the, the engagement room, if you like, would that be enough? I mean, I think it is useful if, if they made uh, a commitment that they intend to do it. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, immediately. It doesn't have to be in their first year. There's a lot that can be done simply, as you said, by being more active participants on a day-to-day -day basis with the council. And we all know that for those who follow these processes, that the, the so-called observers participate in everything but the voting, really, in terms of, uh, you know, you can lead an initiative as an observer, Ultimately, it's it's an important role that that you can play in, and there's a lot that can be done from from that stage as well. How much space do, do we think there's going to be, though? Because things have happened in the last five years. Downey, I see your hand up, and, and we've talked about this before. China has moved in quite heavily and has said openly it's ready to be the one to fulfill the superpower supporting multilateralism role. Well, there are certain things going on at the same time. Uh, one, uh, I think we should be careful that we can't go back to the way it was uh, in, in 2016 or 2015. Uh, and many of the people that are talked about in the Biden administration are all kind of people who've worked in the Clinton and Obama. Uh, so in a sense, are we looking at Obama 2.0? Uh, some of the language coming up, the uh, summit of the democracies, coalition of the willing, we've heard many of this before, uh, and I'm not sure how much new energy or how much new thinking that we're going to see, because as you've said correctly, Imogen, life has gone on and things have changed. And I don't see, for example, the United States talking about going into the International Criminal Court. Uh, I see certain kinds of small changes in the administration, uh, but in general, uh, certainly the, the summit of the democracies uh, is something that was in the Obama administration years ago. Uh, and I would make a distinction between the summit of the democracies and coming out strongly for human rights. And I haven't heard that yet from either Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. Peggy? I wanted to, to pick up that point because I think there is a, a, a significant shift there. And to me, one of the most important points that's been made is an emphasis on the understanding that the support for human rights has to start at home and that there is a focus on how the U.S. has to, it, it can't just assume moral leadership, it has to show moral leadership. And the line that's been used frequently is that they have to lead more by the power of their example than by the example of their power. And I think if you look at the, the platform and the fact that the, you know, the four key elements within it include racial equity and uh, climate and economic recovery, I mean, it's, it's a different approach in terms of what matters and what they're willing to do about it. The, the types of things that they've committed to do on some of these core issues, which are, are human rights issues at home, I think do signal a, a shift in approach that ultimately is the first step to being able to exercise human rights leadership uh, at the UN and, and globally as well. One of the key points to, to, to always bear in mind when it comes down to the United States is, is that most American diplomacy is, is local in the end, meaning that the home front 
matters a, a great deal in terms of what can be done, what 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 any president can get done. And and we've seen this. Okay, we've seen that that Biden won. There's a, quite a margin of votes, six million or so, I think, in terms of the total total vote. A big gap in the in the electoral college, and yet seventy four some million Americans voted for Trump. It just serves to to sort of project an image of a very very divided country, and a country in which issues like race, just this summer, the Black Lives Matter, all all that, all that we saw in the midst of the COVID crisis, you know, it's it's a very uh, the, the, the domestic situation in the United States is not only divided, it's extremely tense. That's an image that that we see more and more because of social media, because of everything, that the United States is always. Everything that happens in the United States is followed closely around the world. As a consequence, although there's clearly a hunger for some kind of American leadership and, and taking a major role in issues like human rights, like Peggy says, it's very difficult if the image of the United States is a very highly racially charged and divided society. To me, it's you've hit the, 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 the point on the nose. But it's also, it links back to this point about the multilateral approach as well, that if what the U.S. can do, it can't solve those problems overnight, but what it can do is if it wants to lead by the power of its example, it can say, we are a democracy that has human rights problems. Some of them are have actually been growing. Some of them have existed since for the time of the, the U.S., and we are willing to subject ourselves to scrutiny, to take criticism, to deal with it in a, in a way that actually recognizes that the strongest human rights advocates are those who are actually willing to admit their, their weaknesses and to address them in a way that's substantive and real, rather than falling behind this guise of it's a question of national sovereignty and you shouldn't have a right to look at our internal affairs. Danny, I'll bring you in in a moment, but I just wanted to look particularly at this question of what Joe Biden will have to deal with domestically. Now, we talked about a divided society. That election was actually still pretty close. I mean, more than 70 million people voted for the Trump-Pence ticket. And America First was writ large, not an entirely new concept as we know, but still writ large throughout these four years. I'm just going to play you a couple of little clips. We've talked about rhetoric, the kind of rhetoric the Americans have been hearing for the last four years. Because they have failed to make the requested and greatly needed reforms, we will be today terminating our relationship with the World Health Organization and redirecting those funds to other worldwide and deserving urgent global public health needs. Human rights abusers continue to serve on and be elected to the council. The world's most inhumane regimes continue to escape scrutiny. Therefore, as we said we would do a year ago, if we did not see any progress, the United States is officially withdrawing from the UN Human Rights Council. I withdrew the United States from the terrible one-sided Paris Climate Accord was a total disaster for our country. So we hear there this very clear, if these international bodies, these multilateral agreements, they don't do what we want, bye-bye. Danny, you wanted to come in. The question I want to ask you is, this is going to be tough isn't it? You can't change more than 70 million minds 
overnight. If you take out the California vote, the popular vote is equal. In other words, you said that Biden won by six million. That's about the difference in California. What's also interesting is that neither Biden nor Harris has come out strongly in favor of the United Nations as a system. So I do think there's going to be a certain continual of cherry picking. This is what we want for the United States. This is when we'll go to this organization. But as far as the organization in and of itself, I don't think there's going to be a fundamental push. And I agree with both UC and Peggy that the internal problems, be it the pandemic or be it economic problems, are going to be the most thing on the agenda uh, for President Biden uh, in the near future. And I think much of the foreign policy will be back on the back burner for a long period of time. Well, let's still stay then with this rhetoric. We talked about what we might expect, what might uh, we hope for. We did all of us stay up late, get up early, trying to find out who had finally won this election. We were agog. I know people lost sleep over it. I certainly did. Is it our mistake? Did we pay too much attention to the US? I mean, because then at the end of the day, um, cynics might say, well, they'll look and then they elect somebody like Donald Trump and you're going to be at his mercy for four years instead of moving on. I mean, I think that's very positive uh, as, as an American. Uh, I think, for example, when during the Trump administration, Europeans, for example, had a policy of what they call strategic autonomy. In other words, if Trump threatens to come out of NATO, maybe the European countries have to start thinking about taking care of themselves. So maybe we'll see different kinds of leadership uh, and the fact that the United States was the instigator for the United Nations, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe it's time for the whole different kind of political power relationship so that the traditional American leadership cannot be the same as it was before, immediately after the Second World War. Maybe that's a positive thing. Peggy? Um, I, I wanted to come in to say that I think you also see uh, power being asserted by different actors in different ways. And um, obviously the role of, of governors and city mayors, both in Europe and in the U.S., has grown in, in some of these conversations and from a human rights perspective is very important. Um, but at the same time, we haven't really hit on uh, one of the big issues that underlies both that election result, but also some of the challenges going forward. And that's the role of business and new technologies in the digital sphere in general, um, which I think is one of the fundamental challenges for uh, anybody who wants to take on that divisive nature of, of the addition, uh, existing electorate um, and why is it so divisive and, and what sort of information are those votes based on is, is really getting at the, the issues of disinformation, abuse online, and, and all the other things that need to be tackled for us to have a conversation that allows for real democracy to be practiced in, in a way that that, you know, doesn't discount science and doesn't uh, discount voices just because they're unpopular. That's a big, big challenge, though, I think, isn't it? I mean, you talk about the social media companies. I mean, politicians like them when they're serving their purposes. I want to look at something else without wishing to dwell on the, the negative too much. I'm going to play you another little clip of the current president. Donald J. Trump, 
This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. We did win this election. What he's doing there is saying that it was all fraud and he actually won. Years ago, Peggy, your former colleague at Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth, talked about the Bush-Cheney war on terror and the examples that the United States was setting around human rights with things like Guantanamo Bay and rendition and so on, and said, this will be an example for other governments, less scrupulous ones, to say, look, the United States is doing it, so it's okay for us to do it. Now, something I think neither Ken Roth nor I would have imagined at that point, that there would be an incumbent in the White House saying, I won, I won, I'm not leaving, it's all fraud. Is that a really dangerous Example, I mean, we are in Geneva, the city of of peace negotiations, of supporting emerging democracies, of human rights. Is this a dangerous example to set to the world? I think there are real, very grave concerns, um, both domestically in terms of the public trust that it has to underlie any government. um, And then also, as you as you very rightfully said, um, what it means globally when you know you can you can impugn an election process with very limited, as we've seen through the court challenges, evidence. I think that that was one piece of this equation. You can say the same thing about the confidence and the approach that has been taken towards the media, the the flipping of the of the terms, you know, fake news and and reliance on news sources that aren't news sources that have you know, no basis in fact, and and the ability to, you know, retweet and cite conspiracy theories as if they are fact, while dismissing the so-called mainstream media has also fed some of these things. And the most dangerous of of that has been the, the opening up of discussion, you know, calling people enemies of the people, language that I did not think you would hear. And when we see the extent to which journalists and media providers generally across the globe are some of the front lines in terms of attacks on uh, the freedom of media and on the press and on people within them, including, you know, an alarming number of people who are killed and detained every year. Opening up that conversation in the way that happened, I think, is, you know, another example of where the approaches that have been taken do have, you know, very serious ramifications globally. You see, you wanted to come in. I mean, that is the way Peggy describes it. A lot of damage to repair. In this case, I'd like to play the optimist for for change. And I'd like to think that what actually is going on, still going on now, and the 2020 election, actually, it's, it's a good thing for democracy. And it's a good thing for the United States, because what actually is happening, as far as I can tell, is that the system is working, that the, the checks and balances are functioning, that the winner is actually going to get sworn in in January of 2021. And so the election is not going to be stolen. I agree with all of the all, all of the things that, that 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 are out there. But Peggy just said in terms of, but there is the conspiracy side in this, and it's very popular. It's all over social media, and that is very very troubling. But the big picture is very likely we have Joe Biden as the president, Kamala Harris as the vice president being sworn in, and we see that the system, despite all the nasty tweets and and, and whatnot 
it works. And, and everybody will around the world will see that. What really matters is the outcome, not the process as much. But I may be wrong. I may be wrong. And, and of course, the, the conspiracy theories will stay on. When we come to 2024, they will be remembered. And there will be plenty of denials about, oh, well, this is not the real president that we've had for four years and so on and so forth. But, but for the moment, um, to be an optimist, you know, things are actually playing out despite all the obstacles in the way that they're supposed to play out. Danny, I want to ask you, because we've heard some concern from Peggy and some optimism from Yussi. Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris will be inaugurated, but Donald Trump and his 70 million supporters, I mean, will Donald Trump be a sleeping giant or a sleeping ogre, depending on how you view him for the next four years, tweeting? Well, if I follow Yussi's optimism about the system, the district attorney uh, in the city of New York, Cy Vance Jr., the attorney general of the state of New York are just waiting for Donald Trump to no longer be president. So in my optimism, uh, he will be taken to court and there will be evidence against him for financial sleight of hands and other things. Uh, and I think it's a little bit like the McCarthy era, which you see knows well, when the bubble burst, it's going to burst. Uh, and I think although there are 74 million people who voted for him, I think the real problem will be what the Republican Party will do uh, if they can get their act together and be a viable party and not just sycophants for Donald Trump. Then I think the system can do well and Donald Trump will be forgotten, hopefully. No one's even talking about his building a library somewhere in Florida in a swamp or on a golf course. Uh, so hopefully the law enforcement agencies in the state of New York and the city will be able to keep him busy for many years. Well, we're almost, unfortunately, um, at the end of this program. We strayed quite a long way from what the new administration might mean for international Geneva. But I think that's OK because it is so fascinating. And America has been in a very strange place, I think we could fairly say, for the last four years and is in a fascinating worrying but maybe also hopeful place right now. I know that you each still would like to say something and I did see you, Peggy, with your hand up. So maybe I could ask you each just for a couple of closing remarks. One key thing you would like to see the new administration bring to international Geneva in the coming months? That's a, a good question. I had wanted to come in on, on, I listen carefully because I want desperately to share that optimism. But I do think there are, are more fundamental issues at stake. And I think if you look at the American uh, system of, of how elections are happening in terms of gerrymandering and voter disenfranchisement, yes, the process worked, but you can almost say it worked, but just barely. And what does it do ultimately to the ability to advance all the policies that we all know need to happen when you have a, a divided uh, country and divided electorate uh, the way that we do. I think it makes it very hard to make some of the, the key decisions that need to be made for crucial human rights issues to really advance in terms of climate, in terms of health, in terms of race. We need people to come together. And I don't think whatever we do with Donald Trump's puts it back in place. So in terms of what we'd like to see from the new administration here in Geneva, you know, I, for one, uh, I do feel that willingness to really say, we're not the, the only actor. 
we know that we have a lot of work to do and, and a certain humility in terms of its engagement is really important. So I'm looking uh, for, for tone as well as substance um, in terms of the approach. And I really like GSC's point about it's not, it's not a question of America first. Every country, to some extent, puts its own countries first. But the issue is, what does that mean in practice? And really a recognition that America is better off when we deal with migration in a different way, when we deal with pandemics in a different way, when we deal with climate in a different way, when we deal with poverty and economic devastation that you know is, is intensifying following COVID-19 a different way, that the U.S. has a role to play in those conversations and is willing to step up to the plate. You see, if you were advising uh, President-elect Joe Biden and his team, look, this is what you should take to Geneva, you know, before April, well, what would you say? What should it be? What I would say is, is these are smart people and they know what is expected. They know what, what people want to hear in international Geneva and other places where the United States has been sort of not in the game over the last last four years. So so the tone is definitely going to be there. I think there's no, no question about that. Now, my concern would be that this administration, like almost any U.S. administration in the past, however, is going to look at the U.N. and the U.N. system and international Geneva as part of it. It's ultimately, as something that America first is going to be part of a bigger game of pursuing American national interest. And what that means is not necessarily in the minds of most policymakers in Washington about, you know, dealing with migration issues the way that is best for the migrants, but rather calibrating American policy in ways that will make sure that our priorities come before the Chinese priorities or the other big players' priorities. And I, I think that's, that is going to lay a shadow on, on everything that the United States is bound to do in the upcoming years, that there are these big geopolitical concerns that ultimately dominate U.S. foreign policy making, and multilateralism is a tool for that, and and that's why we've seen it. No matter what party affiliation or administration has been, it, it it hasn't been as simple as Democrats are good and Republicans are bad for multilateralism. It's not quite as simple as that. The U.S. foreign policy is not there to make the world a better place unless it's good for the United States. I I'm going to have to give the last word to Danny now because we really are running out of time. But just to sum up, I think I'm going to describe Yussi as a cynical optimist and Peggy maybe as a real realistic pessimist or a reluctant pessimist, maybe. Danny, one thing that the Biden administration could bring to Geneva in the next few months? It has to reestablish the moral authority of the United States and to give energy and moral authority to the multilateral system, which has been under attack for the last four years. Short and to the point, Peggy, I'm, I am going to let you in because I, I, I see you with your hand up. One last word. I just wanted to say it's not just about what the U.S. says or how they say it in terms of tone. It's also who they're engaging with. And, and one of the key things here is is really having a different set of voices at the table. And we're at a moment as well where civic space and civil society and human rights defenders globally are under attack. And that occurs both offline and online. And if the US 
can follow up on the diversity that it's trying to reflect in its, in its cabinet and in, in, in its business and actually engage more, not just with, with the, the leadership, but to listen more and engage more significantly with civil society in places where they are under threat and look at what are the, the causes of crises and how we can work with those who are trying to change societies from within. I do think that that's a key element. So a, a huge encouragement to the U.S. to pick up the phone, not just to the, the government on the other side, but to those who are most affected by that government's policies as well. Okay, then pick up the phone. Kamala and Joe, Geneva's waiting for you. My thanks to my guests, Yussi, Peggy, and Danny, and to you all for listening to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks. This has been Inside Geneva, a Swissinfo.ch production. And a reminder just before you go that you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series, including an in-depth documentary on the United Nations at 75. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to swissinfo.ch forward slash eng forward slash Inside Geneva. Join us again next time and thank you all for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.